The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is the Wicked South Podcast. Exploring the dark history of the Murdoch legal dynasty and fascinating criminal cases on both sides of the law. From fall of the House of Murdoch, Appomattox County Courthouse, Virginia, April 9th, 1865. The grave men stood in a ragged rank while history was being made. They were gray in uniform and spirit, grayed by the bullet and the blade. They had shared a thousand campfires, but few hot meals. They had witnessed all manner of death, from grape shot to gangrene. They had seen their brethren blown apart by small arms and cannon fire, to bleed out on the field or be hacked to pieces on a surgeon's bloody table. This was no longer the brazen, cocky South that had fired on Fort Sumter in rebellion. These were broken, conquered sons of the South. Among the vanquished that spring day, according to Murdoch family history, stood Josiah Putnam Murdoch II, a South Carolina boy, his bandages still bloody after fighting for his life in a final campaign. From its earliest beginnings, the Murdoch name is gilded in Southern mystique. The Murdochs of Hampton County don't just portray themselves to be descendants of Civil War heroes. They claim to be right there rubbing elbows with General Robert E. Lee, and claim kinship to Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy. In more modern times, the Murdoch men turned to the practice of law and expanded that Murdoch mystique in the courtrooms of South Carolina for more than 100 years. Hello, friend. That's the amazing prose and voice of journalist, storyteller, historian Michael M. DeWitt Jr. I am Matt Harris, and Seton Tucker is here. Welcome to our new podcast the Wicked South. And we have a Facebook page, Seton. Yes, we do. It is The Wicked South Podcast on Facebook. And I want to get back to your intro, Michael. Hearing that, it sounds like a scene from Gone with the Wind. Especially there was that epic battlefield scene where people are dying and they're having limbs cut off. Every good story starts on a battlefield or starts with blood and death. And there's lots more to be had in this Murdoch uh, family dynasty, that's for sure. We're at the intersection of history and true crime, and the Murdoch cases are, are just the beginning. The Wicked South. When we do this pod, we're going to explore the dark history of the Murdoch legal dynasty in South Carolina, as well as the fascinating criminal cases surrounding them on both sides of the law. You'll get to know the real Murdoch lawyers, as well as the deranged murderers and madmen they prosecuted, and a lot more. Wicked South true crime history 
will be coming up on this podcast. Uh, Michael spent a great deal of time diving deep into the wicked history. There's some great stories. We go from the days of the fallen Confederacy to the courtrooms of the 14th Circuit. The Murdochs made legends of themselves on the battlefield. The gridiron, the courtroom, they built a powerful, wealthy, legal, and political dynasty. In 1912, J.P. Murdoch II's obit noted he served the Confederacy as a member of the famous Hart's Battery, in which he distinguished himself with utmost ability as the quote, noted that he had been severely injured in battle but rallied from the injury, still healing to rejoin the unit and be with Robert E. Lee's forces at the historic surrender to General Grant. Well, again, this is according to family legend. And, Michael, they didn't do much to quell this story. They loved rolling with these tall tales, right? That's correct. You see these these claims made in, in obituaries. You see them made in Hampton County history books and uh, and they may very well be true, but if, if not, the Murdoch certainly didn't discourage it. And afterward, J.P. Murdoch II amassed his wealth in mining, the fertilizer industry, and real estate, including a major land acquisition in Almeida, an unincorporated area near Varnville that became a country home to others in this line of the Murdoch clan. And if you followed the Murdoch trial, you know that Almeida played heavily in it. Varnville played heavily in it. Almeida, the mother and father of Alec, still lived there at the time of the murders. And there's many references in, in, in during the trial of him going there after the murders were alleged to have happened. And did he take guns over there or a raincoat over there? There's lots and lots of mentions of Almeida uh, during the trial. And... Murdoch, this version of the Murdoch, J.P. Murdoch II, married Annie Marvin Davis, who was said to be a loyal, quote, daughter of the Confederacy and cousin of the, quote, great and illustrious statesman Jefferson Davis, who was president of the Confederate States of America, according to several newspaper articles. Not something in this day and age. It was different times. And is there proof about this relationship, or is this one of those things? things that was a story i am a historian and journalist uh, genealogy is at my forte <laughs> um i have spoken to uh to a local who is a, a very good genealogist and she's done some research and she can't find the direct kinship but she has found where they think they were kin by marriage so okay. the claim may be accurate to a point it may be uh, related by marriage instead of blood but when you're um, building a legend, uh, I guess that still counts. <laughs> and uh, make no mistake about it, they were, at that point, very proud Confederate supporters. There's no question about that. Okay, so let's actually jump into the Murdoch family and kind of go back to how they got their roots in Hampton County. J.P. Murdoch II, eyesight was failing in 1885, so he moved to Varnville and eventually had eight children. J.P. Murdoch II's youngest son, Randolph, was born in Vardenville on February 28, 1887. He briefly attended the U.S. Naval Academy until health problems disqualified him from naval service. He then went to the University of South Carolina and graduated in 1908 and then from law school at USC in 1910. 
He was the first of three Randolph Murdochs to embrace both the practice of law and politics, and he wasted little time starting what would become one of the most prominent law firms in South Carolina, PMPED in Hampton. That is hard to say, PMPED. I still struggle with that all this time later. So many letters that kind of blur blur together. (laughs) It's hard. But this was the beginning of the the dynasty right there. (laughs) Yes. Randolph Sr. founded PMPD in 1910. And again, Murdoch's legendary mystique can be seen from day one. Because they say he did not put a sign outside of the front door because he said he knew everyone knew where to find him. So he did not need any sort of sign. Then, in 1920, Randolph Sr. was elected solicitor of the 14th Circuit, a position that he, his son, and grandson held for roughly 86 years. Then that's what they keep talking about, this Murdoch dynasty. For more than 100 years, the Randolph-Murdoch trilogy amassed wealth throughout the personal injury law firm and through power through the criminal justice system, until Alec Murdoch brought it all crashing down. Yeah, I, I, the the personal injury lawsuit take was that in existence? Personal injury lawsuits way back in the early 1900s. Do you know, Michael? Absolutely, I saw uh, lots of uh, cases of of lawsuits. There were a few railroad cases in those early days, but primarily uh, timber companies were. Um, timber was a big industry. Timber and farming were the biggest industries in Hampton County and in the area back in that day. Um, so it might be something like, uh, you know, uh, an employee, a worker uh, injured, um, you know, at a timber mill. Or um, maybe one company said another company uh, cheated them out of some uh, uh, timber money or, or, or things of that nature. So the yeah, personal injury law has, uh, has been around quite a while. It's just changed forms. Car wrecks today are a big thing. Products liability. Back then, it was the you know the economy of the era. It was timber. It was farming. It's hard to believe that there was personal injury lawyers before there were billboards and television commercials. <laughs> <laughs> and you always hear that the Murdoch law firm was the house that CSX built because they had so many train wrecks, right? That's the uh, that's what the locals say behind behind the lawyers' backs. Um, I've heard it called CSX Towers. I've heard it called uh, the house that CSX built, but primarily um, after Randolph Senior's time, the um, railroad, which uh, back then it was called, I think Charleston Western Rail Line, and and there were other railroads. Nowadays, it's uh, CSX Transportation. But in modern times, the railroads were a favorite target of, of this law firm, and that's what earned the nickname. Which is pretty ironic, considering how the first personal injury Murdoch died, right? Because he died getting hit by a train. That is absolutely correct. And uh, we're, we're going to talk about that on a, on a future episode yeah. real soon. And I've got a theory. I think I've solved a case. It's kind of a mysterious death. Um, lots of speculation, lots of rumor and gossip back then and among uh, local historians today. But I think I may have solved the case, but we'll Great as far tease. as uh, what led to him getting hit by a train. But we'll save that for a future episode. Great tease. I know. I can't wait to hear this. We, Matt and I, when we were in uh, actually Barnville, stopped by where, where the accident occurred. So yep. I, I can't wait to hear, great. hear your, your theory. Now we're going to take a, but we're taking a general kind of overview of their, uh, their work in the courtroom in this episode. And 
there's a lot of controversy and some alleged corruptions, but there was also kind of an air of greatness in the courtroom. We had Randolph Murdoch, who was known for being sensational and theatrical. Give us the basic sketch of Randolph Murdoch Sr. Okay. We've jumped ahead from J.P. Uh, Murdoch to his, um, to his descendants. But it's all part of the Murdoch mystique and the Murdoch uh, legend, the legendary status. You know, it started with the Civil War heroes who were right there with with basically what they considered Confederate royalty at the time, rubbing elbows on the pages of history. But now Randolph Sr. wanted to be a naval officer and he had a health condition. And we'll talk more about that later. But he, he couldn't go to Annapolis. So he had to settle for. Uh, another lucrative practice or another uh, successful career. So he went into law. We don't know as much about him as we do about Buster Murdoch Jr. or Randolph III, Mm -hmm. but we can infer from the headlines and the newspaper articles he was very ambitious, very ambitious, and was fearless. He prosecuted former governors, bankers, sheriffs, preachers. If you were on the other side of the courtroom. It didn't matter who you were. He was going to do his best to put you behind bars. And we don't know as much about him. And he wasn't as quite as flamboyant as, as his son, Buster. <laughs> but he, he, had, he was the beginning. He made a governor, a former governor, stand in the prisoner's docket when they read the indictment to treat him like a common criminal. And, uh, you know, lots of colorful courtroom antics followed by his son and his grandson. What was the governor being indicted for? This was during the Great Depression. You'll see a lot of cases during Randolph Sr.'s time period were during the Great Depression because, you know, he died young. So from 1910 to 1940, though a nurse 30 years, the markets crashed. Banks went out of business. Uh, You know, people jumping out of windows because the stock market crashed. So he put away a lot of bankers. There were a lot of bankers out there that would do things like they would continue to accept money even though they knew their bank was broke. Mm. And one of those bankers was a former governor. I want to say he was a Charleston area banker who had also been elected governor. I don't have his name in front of me. But the uh, governor was on trial for violating the banking laws of the day. And he added insult to indictment when he made him stand in the prisoner's uh, docket instead of getting the white collar gentleman's treatment like, um, like you know, like they say Paul Murdoch got in when he went to be arraigned for the boat crash yeah. uh, case. Well, he didn't give the governor, the former governor, the gentleman's treatment. He was in the orange jumpsuit of the day. <laughs> of the day, yeah. Black and white stripes. Right. This plays into how they became sort of beloved by people in the community because they were going after at the beginning here, Randolph senior going after these, these people who were supposed to be untouchable, like former governors and bankers and sheriffs and et cetera. So I think that started them on this uh, path of like the community, like, all right, these are our guys. Uh, They're taking down the big guns. And at some point that kind of flipped a little bit, but right. I mean, that's got to get you points with the community when you're taking down what, appear to be untouchable. Right. If you put your money in a bank and all of a sudden this rich Charleston banker governor takes off and you, your money's gone, then you probably are happy that yep. this person's yep. being prosecuted. Yeah. Well, the, the Murdochs, even going back to, um, to Buster's time, they claimed to be the representative of the little guy. They mm-hmm. took the cases for the little guy and they sued the big corporations. They sued sure. the people who had money in a personal injury law firm. So that made heroes out of them. 
if they were your lawyer and they got you a chunk of money, um, yeah, they were your guy. And Randolph Sr., so he's suing a bank for doing uh, slippery shenanigans. And then 100 years later, Alec Murdoch, his great, would it be great, great grandson, is using the bank to do shenanigans. Yeah. Quite the opposite. Um, <laughs> let's move to, uh, to Randolph Sr.'s son, Buster Murdoch, who would be Alex's grandfather. Grandfather. Yeah, I got to do the math. He was a football player at USC, and he was big time in Gamecock football. Went to USC Law School like the rest of everybody. Uh, and Alec played, went to USC Law School and played, well, he was on the team. I don't think you probably know more about it than I do, Michael, but I don't think Alec Murdoch really played much on the team because he had previous injuries. Yeah, um, in the Fall of the House of Murdoch, uh, in that book, I wrote that there, the Murdochs had a playbook of traditions. And one of them is attending USC and USC Law School. And the other was playing Gamecock football. So obviously, Buster uh, was you know quite the athlete. Uh, he earned the, the name because he would bust the opponent. Ah. Um, and uh, Randolph III, I think he was probably average. Alex wasn't, from what I've read, wasn't a great athlete it, to him. I think he walked onto the team, if I'm not mistaken. Buster went on a scholarship. Remember the Great Depression of, of his father, Randolph Sr.? Well, Randolph's fortune, all the money that J.P. Uh, Murdoch made, all the money that Randolph inherited kind of got washed away in the Great Depression. Wow. He was kind of broke like everyone else. So Buster Murdoch went to Carolina on a football scholarship. That's how he was able to get there. Huh. Um, and you can read all about this in the in the upcoming book. Buster, in the beginning, you have to kind of admire him because he worked two or three jobs while he was going to school. He, he got there on a football scholarship. He, you know, he clerked at the, in, this, in this South Carolina Senate and uh, did other jobs to help pay his way. Uh, he was a child of the Great Depression. And then you have the other Murdochs. They built that wealth back up so they don't have the working class grit that, that Buster quite had. And... Alex didn't have the football talent that, that the rest mm. of them had. To him, it was just part of the family tradition. I've got to do it whether I play or not. i got to get on the team, you know? No, you always think of them always having generational wealth from the, from the get-go. That's actually really interesting that Buster had to work his way through school. Yeah. Describe uh, Buster Murdoch. It sounds like, in some of the descriptions I've read, Boss Hog kind of comes to mind, <laughs> or someone like that from the Dukes of Hazard. Uh, give us the, the take on what Buster's image was as an attorney, I should say. Well, like I said, he didn't inherit his, uh, the wealth that his father and, and grandfather had. He had to rebuild it on his own, but he did inherit that solicitor's office. He was raised mm. the son of a of an attorney and a solicitor, and when his father died young in that train wreck, he just stepped into those big shoes, but he is a combination of grit and ambition with a healthy dose of arrogance. He's very, <laughs> very cocky in the courtroom. He's flamboyant. He's even more flamboyant than his father was. But overall, that cockiness was to me. That's it. If you had this only one word in your vocabulary that you could use to describe him, I would, I would have to go with cocky. How about the fact that he was chewing tobacco? Yeah, and, uh, and or a cigar uh, as he was was he was working the the crowds in the courtroom. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it, it was a different time period. I mean, if you 
in some venues, you might not even be looked at twice, but there is a Hampton County legend. I haven't seen it written anywhere. I've only heard it orally that he was chewing tobacco in a, in a 14th Circuit courtroom. I had the name of the judge, but since I haven't confirmed it, I won't mention the judge's <laughs> name. But the judge, that particular judge objected to the fact that Buster was had a big old wad of red man in his, in his cheek. And was uh, apparently he was spitting. I don't know if he had spittoons in the courtroom <laughs> or if he was spitting into a cup, but apparently he was spitting during the, the court session. And the judge stopped and said, you're going to have to take that chewing back out of your mouth. I can't have you chew it and spit in my courtroom. <laughs> and Buster said, OK, well, he packed up all his court files, packed up his briefcase, and he just abruptly walked out the courtroom. And he was the only prosecutor uh, there. They couldn't have court without a prosecutor, so eventually the judge <laughs> called him back and said, all right, I reckon you can chew. And, uh, they let him back in. So is Hampton uh, a big tobacco area? Because my husband grew up near the Florence area, and actually his dad was from Chesterfield, and he, his parents were uh, sharecroppers, and they, he grew up picking tobacco. And my, our family legend says that he started chewing tobacco when he was like eight or something like right, that. Because right, right by so, the fields. I mean, I definitely times have changed, but was tobacco something that was grown in Hampton? It was, but it wasn't the major crop. Back then, the major crop was, was truly watermelons. As you know, we have our, our watermelon oh, festivals yeah. named after, after that. And it's not anymore. And, we, and, you know, we could probably spend a whole nother episode talking about the evolution of, of agriculture over the years. But watermelons are no longer our biggest crop. But one county over, I'm told, in Colleton uh, County, where they had the murder trial and where Moselle's at, I'm told it was very big over there. A lot of farmers in Islington, uh, which is near Moselle, and a lot of farmers in Colleton County grew tobacco. And folks over here in Hampton County grew watermelons. So I guess mm-hmm. maybe... At the farmer's market, they, they swapped, uh, swap a melon for a good chew of tobacco, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you chew, uh, chew uh, the watermelon, spit the seeds instead of the, the tobacco. Uh, yeah. let's, let's talk about this trial where Buster brought in two hunting dogs. Tell us about that. I'm trying to do some more research. In one article I saw, uh, it appeared that Buster brought them into the courtroom. I suspect that might have been the other attorney that brought them in. But at any rate, they were introduced as evidence. It was a murder trial, and I think the victim was shot, but they were trying to claim that because he was in a boat and had two dogs in the in the boat with him, the boat turned over and caused him to drown or whatever. Uh, most interesting part of that story was the two dogs were introduced as evidence to show how big they were and that the weight of the dog could indeed turn the boat over. So I suspect they might have been introduced by the defense um, attorney, and uh, Buster had a field day with it. He just kept making jokes, saying uh, to the jury, I promise not to ask the dogs more than uh, two questions each. Or (laughs) first he said if they will refrain from questioning the dogs. And then he said, I promise not to ask them more than three questions each. There we go. There you go. A lot of people wanted to question Bubba in the the Alec Murdoch trial. I know. That is right. That's what's so (laughs) craziness about this story from 1956. And it's 2000. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line 
prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 23, and we would love to have those dogs on trial that were there at Alex at the, at the murder scene. There was artwork. People did artwork about Bubba. Yep. Yes, exactly right. Well, how long was Buster Murdoch as solicitor? Because, I mean, we have a, 50, a story from 1956. We have a story from 19... He was a long time. You know, always uh, double-check my math because I'm a historian, but uh, my, my math memory is not so great. 1940 to 1986. So, yeah, his father was elected in 1920. His father died in 1940. So... Gotcha. Um, he served as solicitor from 1940 to 1986, which means his father was solicitor for 20 years and he was solicitor for 46 years. Wow. Let's talk about this sign that he had placed on I-95. I mean, many of our listeners have driven on 95 and he put a sign up that said murders welcome in Colleton County. I don't think we can see signs like that on the interstate these days. So he, well, why, why did he put that up for? What was the, was the point of the sign? Well, that he didn't, uh, he didn't put the sign up. He oh. threatened to put the sign up. Okay. Um, he didn't. Okay. He was uh, prosecuting a murder trial in Walterburg, and he told the jury that if they did not, if they did not deliver a guilty verdict, verdict, then they might as well put a sign in blood on I ninety five that read "Murderers Welcome in Colleton County." <laughs> um, I think I wrote this uh, in a, in an article or two. The Murdochs won in the courtroom either through the power of connections or just good old Southern charm. But if they couldn't win with Southern charm, they they won by kind of fear tactics. He, yeah. he wanted the Collin County jury to be afraid that he would that he would embarrass them. Or and there are other examples of of him telling juries things like, "Oh, if you don't send this murderer to prison, I'll set I'll turn this guy loose and he'll kill other people." He would say things to the jury and to the court that either intimidate them or make them afraid. And in this particular case, the verdict was guilty, but Buster was sanctioned by the higher court uh, for his improper statements and improper conduct to the jury. Well, that sign sure is a lot different than the south of the border signs that (laughs) that I remember from my youth. (laughs) Absolutely. It's also to me interesting that 
these are kind of legendary, but they are examples of the Murdochs bending the law, if not stretching it or breaking it or whatever, because he was sanctioned many times. And I have this weird theory in my head that it was one of those things that they were kind of proud of. He did this, he said this, he said... And when you hear enough stories about somebody who's the family hero bending the law, taking uh, liberties with the law, that's got to somehow stick in your your brain morally at some point. If you just keep hearing over and over again, oh, good old grandpa, remember how he screwed those people over in the courtroom? <laughs> that was wonderful. It has to have an effect, I think. Yeah. Because it's not like, well, we're so ashamed of him. For the terrible way he said these things, it's all like, ha ha, look at him. Look at him smoking tobacco or, and, you know, chewing dip in the courtroom. More importantly, saying things that he gets sanctioned for multiple yeah. times. That's not something that you, as an attorney, want to be proud of. But, you know, that's me maybe reading too much into it. But I'm doing it anyway. No, I think you're absolutely right. I yeah. think that was um, that was part of their mystique. They did things their own way. Um and, you know, they they were the law here in the 14th Circuit and they did things their own way. And I'm just curious. I'd like to, to know the types of family stories that that Alex Murdoch heard. I'd like to know if Randolph and the family sat around and talking about the old man and how he got away with this and how he got away with that. And I wonder if maybe that had a large part in making Alex Murdoch who he was. It, it could have. I'm with you. I would have liked to be a fly on the wall with the Buster and Pat Conroy meeting. Oh, yeah. From descriptions, they both are, seem like they're real big personalities. And, and yeah, we, we touched on it briefly in uh, the episode about your book, but tell us about that Pat Conroy meeting. And those who don't know Pat Conroy, an author that uh, Prince of Tides. Uh, Great Santini. Great Santini. And he's legendary Southern writer, but he's known, of course, nationally. Explain about that meeting. Uh, an editor reminded me that um, Conroy was a fiction writer. So like any good fiction writer, he's going to exaggerate a little bit. He, <laughs> he doesn't uh, have to be 100 uh, percent factual as we do when we're writing nonfiction or journalism. Um, but I, I, I believe if, uh, if that this is pretty, pretty much more or less true. But uh, Conroy was on trial in Hampton. Um, his for whatever reason, uh when he sued to get his job back as a teacher on Defusky, and he wrote about that in one of his books, the trial was held in Hampton, and he wrote about this uh, this man sitting in the back, smoking a cigar, just laughing his ass off was the way the quote <laughs> went, and everything he said. And after the, the trial, he walked up to him and introduced himself to Conroy and said, uh, I'm the cock of the walk in this part of South Carolina, and boy, you really know how to put on a show. And then he blew cigar smoke into his face and asked him to give up that teaching nonsense and come join the law law firm. Wow. I'll, uh, I won't quote the rest of it because he uses some, some more strong language, but basically <laughs> he's uh, offered to make him a, a dang good lawyer and uh, Conroy turned him down. <laughs> That's kind of a real statement of how the character. I could just visualize it, right? You could just visualize this guy with the big cigar like i have a foghorn leghorn sort of <laughs> yeah well, I, well, I, well, I, well i ought to tell you <laughs> yes. boss hog i think boss hog is a good way good a good analogy yep a big personality yes all right let's talk about randolph murdoch the third which would be Alec and randy and john marvin's father 
I don't know if he did try or he claimed to have tried more than 200 murder cases. Is that a braggadocious mention or is that a reality? Yeah, I got that information. I interviewed him in 2018 when he was awarded the uh, Order of the Palmetto, which is the, the highest civilian honor you can get. Sometimes it's well-deserved. Sometimes I think it's political in nature, but he was awarded the Order of the Palmetto. So we, he sat for an interview at his office in Hampton, and this was before. It was the same year Gloria Satterfield died, but it was before any of this came out. So I'm a reporter, editor for The Guardian, and we're having a nice little friendly sit-down interview. And he tells me that in his uh, roughly 20 years in five counties, he has tried more than 200 cases. And he even got two murder convictions in one week in the same term of court. And obviously, you'd have to do a great deal of research to confirm that. Well, it's 20 years, 200 murder cases. That's 10 a year. He's cranking them out like once a month. So, I mean, some of them, I would assume some of them don't have much of a, it's like guilty <laughs> or, or, or whatnot, right? There's not a whole court trial after everyone. Right. You have a lot of guilty pleas and then you'll have some, some trials. Yeah. It also seems like maybe there's a lot of murders happening in the 14th Circuit. Well, you got to remember that's a lot of, there's five counties. So yeah. it's, a, it's a large. That's just. Yeah. My non-professional opinion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you've got, um, you know, from Allendale, you've got rural counties like Allendale and, and Hampton. And then you go all the way to Beaufort County, which includes Beaufort and Hilton Head. When you're the only prosecutor, I think in later years, he, they hired more assistant deputy solicitors. But in those early years, um, I imagine Buster probably had 400 murder cases or more than that. Can't confirm it, but I find it very believable. Sure. Now, this is the favorite story for Seton because uh, she grew up uh, in Hilton Head, went to school there, high school there. And so the story about uh, Randolph and the Gold Club, which was, well, explain what the Gold Club was. All right. Let me, let me tell this story, what the Gold Club is. Oh, she's so excited. Yes. So I remember (laughs) when this Gold Club was coming to Hilton Head, it was I mean, people were up in arms. Some people were in favor. It was it was big news in Hilton Head about this gold club. But they tried to kind of sell it as like this upscale, kind of maybe like more of like a cabaret type thing. Not a strip club. Not a strip club. <laughs> they, tried to, they tried to make it seem more upscale. So much so that on the night that it opened was babysitting for a pretty prominent family in Hilton Head so that the couple could go because you could go as a woman if you went with your husband. It was So they it started weird. it out as like a super classy They tried place. to make it seem classy. So that's what- 1991. That was my story. On <laughs> yes. One. And did you and you knew at the time that's where they were going? Yeah. No, they told me they were going, but they were trying to make it seem more like a review, like the Moulin Rouge in Paris, oh, that okay. it was going to be like something more upscale. So, I don't think that was really accurate, but they did try to make it seem that way. What, did, what was Randolph the Third's? part in this uh, gold club that they were trying to make sound upscale. I heard this story uh, directly from Randolph himself. Uh, um, I know he told me the story in 2018. I think he's told me that story in other meetings or interviews. And, you know, I never really gave it much thought to the accuracy of it. I just said, hey, that's a pretty interesting story. That fits with the Murdoch uh, mystique. That fits with the Murdoch character. But basically, here's the story. And then I since I have verified, I found uh, two newspaper articles that verified the same story <laughs> he told me. So I, I included it in, uh, in, the, in the book and we're having, talking about it here. The sheriff of Beaufort County was there on opening night. 
the sheriff was there and the solicitor was there and whether he was there on personal business or, or <laughs> public business uh, is up for debate. But he said that uh, he, when he got in that night, he had been up late serving the 14th circuit, but he was there uh, for the grand opening. And when the Baptist and the concerned citizens came to him, he said, I'll, I'll monitor the situation. I promise you, I'll keep a close eye on their activities. <laughs> and, when he, and when he told this, me the story, when he said close eye, he winked. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's up for your, your interpretation. <laughs> well, you know, he's, he, he takes his job seriously. He's making <laughs> right. sure he's keeping an eye. Now, Seton, do you need an update on the gold club? Is it still... I, it did not last long. I, no, I can't tell you the exact specifics. In the south in that area, the Baptist and whatnot, it's it's hard to pull off the classy gentlemen's club. I mean, there are gentlemen's club on Hilton Head now, oh. I, I believe so, but it's more... You believe so? You ever been there? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they're probably not the classy joints that they tried to be. Uh, I, I mean, they might be I nice, think, but they're not... I think it's where golfers might go. I, who knows? They're trying to pretend you don't know. That's great. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, put, you, put yourself in, in the character of uh, Randolph Murdoch. I always like to inject myself into the character and, and ha- what they think and what they feel. And some of it's just purely, you know, an educated um, uh, guess. But mm-hmm. he's from Barnville, uh, Hampton County. We don't have gold clubs in Hampton County. <laughs> um, so you're a small town Hampton County boy and you go over there to, um, you know, Hilton Head wasn't always like it is now. Hilton Head kind of blew up, as, as Seton knows. So you're a small-town boy, small-town solicitor, and now you're in a one, – one county in your circuit is really booming, and they've got uh, um, strip clubs and, and women on stage that you don't see in Alameda. <laughs> you don't see in Barville. So, yeah, I imagine it was quite a, a temptation for when you're a Murdoch and you've got lots of money, lots of power. I imagine there was probably more than one night and he, he was out serving the 14th circuit. <laughs> How so. far is, uh, is it to, to Hilton head from say Seton, um, Varnville or. I have there... not actually done the drive from Hilton head to yeah. Hampton. What do you think it is, Michael? From my part of Hampton County, it's like a, an hour, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. If you, yep. if you get on um, 278, it means like three hours. Well, an hour. Hey, this guy's driving yeah, an hour to go to a strip club. That's that's that is dedication. The other uh, notes about Randolph Murdoch the Third, the Papa of Alec and Randy. He had this armed robbery uh, situation. Tell us that deal. He was colorful. I think that uh, I think Al, uh, Randolph the Third had his. Um, you know, he had one of his uh, lines to me and I quoted him in the book was, you know, the older I get, uh, temptation avoids me. Well, um, I think arrogance and and money and power, I think they were Buster Murdoch's temptations. And I think Randolph the third had more worldly temptations of his own. There are drinking stories out there. There, there are more stories like the, the gold club stories out there. And, and if I couldn't prove them, you know, I, I didn't print them. You know, he had his share of temptations and he in the courtroom, he wasn't as colorful or as theatrical as his father, but he did have his moment. And one of them was there was a trial, arm robbery, and he walked up to the courtroom as the prosecutor and said, would the two defendants who committed the arm robbery please stand up? And then both suspects took the bait and stood up. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good tactic. That was one. Yeah. Uh, yes. And he also did a little uh, 
tactic in the 89 death penalty case in Walterboro. How did that play out? This kind of reminds me of some of the interruption and some of the things that happened in uh, Alex Murdoch's case. But the defense attorney was making his opening remarks to the jury. And apparently there was some question about, in this case, a woman and her boyfriend had killed a law enforcement officer. And they were trying to say that the boyfriend did it and not the, the girlfriend. So the defense attorney said, did she shoot the weapon or, or, did, or not? And Randolph was just sitting at the table and he promptly interrupted and answered loudly, yes. <laughs> so interrupted the opening statements uh, uh, from the defense, which is a no-no. But You know who yeah. that sounds like to me? That sounds a little bit like Dick Carpootland. Somehow I think <laughs> that these two might be smoking a cigar together if they room. had been in the same generation. Sure, they knew each other. They had to have in the, the 80s. Yeah, I guess and, they're not. Sure, yeah. Dick's younger, but... I would have to assume that they were at least friendly with each other, if not buddies or whatever, right? right. They, they were certainly contemporaries. And, yeah. uh, the, um, and Harpootman probably even knew, uh, went up against Buster a time or two in the later years of Buster's career. Yeah, because he's um, been around a while. I don't know if, we, if I mentioned this in, in our earlier conversations, but the same governor, uh, Henry McMaster, the same governor that signed the order of the Palmetto for Randolph was once uh, one of his opponents, one of his political opponents, Randolph III now, Randolph III, had been asked to prosecute some uh, Democrats in another county. He was called in to be a special prosecutor, and some of his fellow Democrats were accused of uh, election improprieties and violating uh, voting laws. Well, SLED had a folder six inches thick on, on these Democrats, and uh, Randolph III comes in after one day and says, I don't see anything illegal here. I'm going to dismiss the case. Whoa. And McMaster was a Republican attorney at the time. He was head of the South Carolina Republican Party, and so they were some head-to-head back and forth. McMaster tried to have Randolph III taken off the case and accused him of impropriety and, you know, saying that he's got his own election scandals in, in the background. And wow. plus, you now he's trying to look out for his fellow Democrats. So just long story short, that same Republican governor later gave him the order of the Palmetto. <laughs> wow. And, wow. and the current South Carolina governor, that is, too. That is interesting right. because they are definitely opposite ends of the political spectrum. It tells you that in that world of being attorneys and politicians and, and whatnot, your adversaries until your buddies. We saw that in this case. I don't think there's bad blood between you know, attorneys that take the opposite side in a case. You just, uh, it is the job. You know, one thing that kind of comes to mind when you're talking about this generational legal dynasty of the Murdochs is when I was in federal court a few weeks ago watching Alec Murdoch have his bond hearing for the federal financial crimes, he went up and he spoke to the prosecution team, shook their hand. You know, he knows how to work a room too. And I that's something that the sense that I get about these Murdochs is they kind of know how to read a room. And that was something that they they took advantage of. You saw that with, uh, you know, every generation, with, with Buster, with, with Randolph, with Alex. I was in the courtroom in Beaufort County when Paul was arraigned for, um, for felony uh, boating under the influence. And Alex turned around and spoke to me like we were sitting in church. Uh, so just wow. that friendly, hey, how you doing? They always know your name. It's all part of the, 
the Murdoch uh, playbook, you know, some Southern charm. And if you ran into a Murdoch nine times out of 10, they would shake your hand and they would know your name. And I know that I, at the beginning of this, I remember seeing that they had to release some documents about which parties they give money to and that sort of thing. And you, and I saw in there that, you know, they gave some money to Republicans, they gave some money to Democrats. They were kind of making sure that, and I don't think that's unusual in law firms and that sort of thing, but you know, whatever they- We could whoever, go down many roads with this yes. about the election, non-election of judges. There's lots of, uh, yes, lots of, but lots it's, of areas uh, to go down. One uh, question before we start to wrap here. I'm just curious because we know Alec had that big frame, which made him a big presence. Were th- was his father and grandfather, were they tall as well? Were they over six foot? Alex is a little taller than his father, but uh, but Randolph was, was a tall, broad-shouldered uh, figure. Buster was short and stocky. Oh, so back to the um, boss hog. Yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, and that's what made him a, a good football player. He was, I mean, he wasn't short, short, but he was shorter and wider and stocky. I think he put on like 40 or 50 pounds in college and was moved to, from tight end to lineman or something like that. But uh, it's hard to tell in the photos from Randolph Sr. I think he was just an average man of, of slight build. Buster is clear that he was a, a stocky guy. It's, it's, you can see it in the photos. You, you can read about it in the news and magazine articles. I've had many conversations with, with Randolph, and he was a tall, broad-shouldered guy, just not quite as tall as Alex. And Randolph the third, the father. Right. So you had 200 murders, and some of those were on appeal, either overturned or had to have a retrial. Is, is that correct? Yeah, it, it's very fascinating. I touch on this a, a good bit in my work. Buster was the worst one. Buster had cases um, that were appealed to the higher court, appealed to the um, state Supreme Court. He had cases overturned. He had cases where he was sanctioned by the by the higher courts for doing something wrong. There were times when his uh, guilty, especially with death penalty cases, they are almost always appealed. But he had times when his convictions were upheld. Then he has times when these people were set free and turned loose because of something Buster did in the courtroom. Mm. And there's also, I found this very fascinating. There were at least one case I found in the in the newspaper archives where Buster got a death penalty conviction. And at the end of his career, it was appealed and had an order to be retried. Randolph III came back and tried the same a murder suspect that his father had convicted and reconvicted him and sent him back to death row. Wow. So there were our murderers out there where they had the pleasure of being convicted by Randolph Jr. and Randolph the third. Well, and we're going to be talking about more of these murders down the road. Uh, we've got this, this is, this is going to be great. The shocker of a story. Uh, it is all about the Charlotte Strangler. And this is, a must hear podcast. Uh, it is going to be our, our next episode. Uh, a wicked man was just passed through the 14th circuit when he ran afoul of the law, an ill-advised show of mercy. 14th circuit solicitor Randolph Murdoch, the third turned him loose, not knowing he was violent past in multiple States. And there will be a terrible outcome because of that. It's all coming up on our next episode. Um, Michael DeWitt, thank you. And Seton, thank you. And me, thank me. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Matt. (laughs) Uh, We will talk soon, friend.